You may be seated. Well, it's a blessing to be with all of you as we continue our celebration of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord, uh, which marked the birthday of God's new world, or more accurately, God's renewed world. Uh, and as you can see, uh, I'm not Father Cameron, by the way. Um, it, that's fake news in your bulletin, even though it says that. Uh, I've been with you a couple times before. My name is Father Matt Ainsley, and I'm currently serving as an associate priest over at the Church of the Ascension. And Lord willing, will be the vicar of All Souls Episcopal Church, a new church coming to Southwest Orlando this uh, fall uh, Again, Lord willing, uh, so appreciate your prayers on that front, and it is, again, always a joy to be with you all. Uh, so today we continue in this, this, this Easter tide. There's always this sense of uh, education when we're going through the church year of just like Christmas isn't just one day. We don't go through December 25th and it wasn't that great and then forget about the birth of Jesus. It's 12 days and then we have an epiphany and epiphany tide. The same with Easter. The Easter tide is this season of, of 50 days where we bask in the salvation that Christ won for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And again, his resurrection marks the birthday of God's new world, of God's renewed world, because it is through the resurrection that God's good creation, which was broken and is flawed on account of sin, is rescued and redeemed and recreated. So the story of redemption in general and the event of the resurrection in particular need to be understood within this context of new creation, new Genesis. Right at the beginning of today's gospel, John chapter 20, verse 19. And John, having already done so in verse 1, he draws our attention to the fact that Jesus' resurrection occurred on the, quote, first day of the week. Here and elsewhere in the Gospel of John, the days of the week are marked as allusions to the days of creation. And in chapter 20, he, he tells us twice because he doesn't want us to miss it. He wants us to see that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. That this is the first day of the age to come. This is the first day of God's new creation. Well, let's go back to that old creation for a second. In Genesis, what is it that God is doing? The story of Genesis, particularly Genesis 1 and 2, is the story of God making for himself a temple, making for himself an abode. And so God makes heaven and earth to be his dwelling place. He makes the cosmos to be his temple. And he starts... With a garden. And he puts into that primal, arboreal temple these creatures who bear his image. And he commissions them. He gives them a job. He gives them a vocation to be stewards of his creation. And more than that, to be royal and priestly beings whose project is to expand the borders of the Garden of Eden until the manifest presence of God, 
until the reign of God fills the whole earth. This is the plan of God. This is what we see at the very beginning in dramatic and poetic action that God is declaring, this is my dwelling place. And what is Christ's name when he comes to dwell in our midst? Emmanuel, God with us. And what do we see at the very end of the age in the book of Revelation? The the heavenly reality, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as adorned for as a bride adorned for her husband, and God declaring, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's the Eden project. And if, well, what happens if you happen to keep reading uh, your Bible past uh, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you'll find that the Eden project goes off the rails quite quickly. Uh, But... And this is what we have to understand. It is never abandoned. God never says, well, oh well, that was good. We gave it old good college try and let's try something else. Because what does John write at the beginning of Revelation? He says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So there's the reign of God. But then listen to this, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and to, and made us to be a kingdom. There's that royal dimension. And then he says, priest, serving his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he makes us to be a kingdom, to be priest. And we were created and redeemed to be, again, these royal and priestly creatures. So yes, Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. There is none beside him. But as Psalm 8 says, he's crowned us with glory and honor. He's created these peculiar creatures. And he's commissioned us to be the agents of implementing his will and his kingdom. And he's implemented and he's commissioned us in Christ afresh to be agents of new creation, to be the means by which the kingdom of God comes on earth as in heaven. So he involves us in his project. So the resurrection is in part God doubling down on that Eden project. Christ is resurrected where? In a garden, Mary Magdalene mistakes him for who? A gardener. And he commissions us to expand the borders of the new Eden until the manifest presence of God, until the reign of God fills the whole earth. That that vision that we get in the great prophets like Isaiah and, and Habakkuk, that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That the cosmos, that God's temple, which is heaven and earth, that God's dwelling place, he desires his dwelling place to be with us, that that will, at the end of the age, become a reality in practice. That the prayer that we pray day by day, Lord willing, we do, and especially week by week, that thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That that prayer will be answered fully and finally and the resurrection is the guarantee 
that it will. So there's this reissuing of the commission that God gave those first humans. The great commission is really just a reissuance of the Edenic commission. Listen to it. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then in John 20, which we just heard, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and what did he, what did he do? He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So again, another parallel to Genesis. As God breathed life into Adam at the first creation, so does he breathe new life into his creation by giving to them the Holy Spirit. Because when I think about, because we should, as Episcopalians, have a really high ecclesiology, a really high view of the church. And when I think about what the church is, and what God has called the church to do, and the transformation that he wants to work in us, but also the transformation that he wants to work in the world through us, I get overwhelmed by that. But then I take heart, because it's not something that I'm going to have to do in my own power. It's not a matter of intellect. It's not a matter of, of talent and ability. It's a matter of God equips the call and he has given us the Holy Spirit, which is the means of transformation and the means of empowerment to go out and do that which God calls us to do. We can't do it in our own power. It's only by the Spirit of God who dwells in us. So what God does is that he puts the world right through people who are in the process of being put right. Uh, in other words, God doesn't wait till we're perfect to use us. God can take even our failures and use them for good. He can, for example, take our doubts and use them to increase faith. Now, I think we've been too hard on Thomas. I, th- I think I think we can be too hard a lot of times, especially you know coming uh, from the Baptist Church. We're doing a lot of character studies and, and learning about different uh, figures in the Bible. We, we can sort of be judgmental towards them. You know, we'll look at someone and say, "Well, why why didn't they just trust God and and do what He said and believe that He was good?" Well, why don't I just <laughs> trust God and believe what He said and, and know that He's good? So we have Thomas. And he wasn't with the disciples, we know, the first time that Jesus comes to him. And he, and he says the famous line, Unless I see the mark of the nail in his hands and I put my finger in the mark of the nails in my hand and his side, I will not believe. So on account of this statement, uh, there are many in the church that, that call him what? This nickname, Doubting Thomas. Did Thomas doubt? Yes. But does that make him worthy of such a moniker? I mean, we don't call Peter denying Peter, do we? And I would contend that Peter's three-time denial of our Lord was far worse than Thomas just wanting to make sure this is really Jesus risen from the dead in bodily form. 
I would contend that we should remember Thomas not for his doubt, but for his faith. Because out of this sequence of events arose one of the most definitive statements of Jesus' divinity in all of Scripture. My Lord and my God. And it is through Thomas's encounter with Jesus that the accounts of the resurrection are strengthened and bolstered. Jesus not only appears to multiple people at the same time, he does so on multiple occasions. And Thomas's encounter with Christ destroys any notion that Jesus was a ghost or an apparition. On the contrary, Jesus was and is flesh and blood. He can be touched. John writes about this in his epistle, the one, the one we've seen, the one we've heard, the one we've beheld, the one we've touched. And Christ, it's amazing to me that, and we see this in the book of the Revelation, that he will forever bear the marks of his victory. I mean, that could just be a one-line term. Bear his wounds and think about the fact that, that Christ will forever bear his wounds, the marks of his victory. How great is salvation. So, Thomas, this is not what the kids on the internet call a hot take, meaning this is not a fresh take on Thomas. Uh, in fact, this is a very old one, uh, one that has perhaps been forgotten. Uh, as I have researched and read about this, the church fathers, particularly uh, in, in the East, so Eastern Orthodox Christianity, they have a much more positive take on Thomas. Uh, they tended to be much more focused on his transformation as opposed to his moments of doubt. I mean, early Christian icons have inscriptions such as the touching of Thomas, the assurance of Thomas, believing the belief of Thomas. So, yes, he doubted, but when Thomas encounters the risen Jesus, faith wells up and his life from that point is utterly transformed. We see a progression in the life of Thomas from scattering to doubting to believing. And tradition tells us that Thomas was a missionary to Greece and then to India where he was eventually martyred. Local religious authorities in India uh, were angered by his ministry that was turning the world upside down. And so they impaled Thomas with a spear. When God writes the story of our life, he focuses on the transformation and the renewal, not the failures. The scripture that says that David was a man after God's own heart was written after he had adult, he committed adultery, after he murdered a woman's husband. The focus was on the restoration and the redemption. So, Doubting Thomas? How about Thomas the missionary? How about Thomas the martyr? Thomas the saint? Those who are in Christ are defined by the regenerative and renewing work of the Holy Spirit rather than by their past failures. That, that gives me hope.
speaking personally, that, that God meets us where we're at. And that's not an excuse for a lack of personal holiness. Because God meets us where we're at, but, but he never leaves us there. He takes our feebleness. He takes our brokenness. And he, he transforms it into something incredible, into a reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that Thomas became a man of great fortitude and faith, that God used him to turn the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ, used him to expand the borders of the new Edom, that is to be a kingdom bearer and a kingdom bringer. And so if we want to experience that same sort of transformation, which I hope we do, otherwise why did we get out of bed this morning? And this is why. Because not figuratively, not um, theatrically, but actually, we encounter the risen Jesus in this place. Therefore, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we enter the center, the central reality of the cosmos. And Christ shares himself with us. He gives us his very own body to eat and his blood to drink so that he can dwell in us and we can dwell in him. And so that like Thomas, we can be transformed by the risen Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we we need those encounters, encounters in the scriptures, encounters in the, the sacramental life of the church, encounters in our neighbors. We need to cooperate with the Holy Spirit who is at work in all of us who believe and have been baptized. And we do this so that we like Thomas, may be transformed into people of great faith who with our lips as well as with our lives say, my Lord and my God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.